0: This is The River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. 1969 is the first year that I did a Grand Canyon trip.
1: I think that was the second year that the Park Service had put in pit toilets, and one of them was at Nankoweep, and there was another one farther down in the canyon. Those things were horrible, and I remember coming around the corner, and there was the sound of all these incredible flies buzzing this area that the pit toilet was in. And the smell in the summertime was horrendous. You could smell that thing for a quarter of a mile away. And we didn't camp at Nankowee. We had planned on it, but we went a little bit farther down and found a camp that wasn't as unpleasant and didn't have the flies around either. But there were already people who did not like the idea of burying waste in the canyon because you frequently would show up on beaches, whether you were hiking or whether you were on a river trip, and the wind had blown over and you had toilet paper and you had dried feces on a, a place that you maybe wanted to camp. So there was already a big movement to take your waste out. My second trip was 1974, and we had... Groover boxes in
0: 74. Today's episode comes to you from the archives and is a reissue of one of my favorite episodes, The History of the Groover. This is our first reissue of any episode, and it comes at a great time. I'm on the move this summer, gaining interviews from incredible river people about incredible river stories. So while new content is being recorded and built into new episodes, please enjoy this story about the history of the Groover. This episode was originally published in May of 2021. Have you ever wondered about the history of the Groover? What drove people to carrying a box of poop on their boats? When the first Groovers went down the river? Where the name Groover comes from? And maybe I need to start with the definition of a Groover. A Groover is a toilet for the river. It is a leak-proof, washable, reusable toilet system designed to be carried on river boats and set up in river camps, and then to somewhat comfortably allow folks to deposit their poop, and not really their pee, in that reusable toilet. The intention is to not leave poop in the river corridors where many people are traveling and camping. I sort of wondered about the history of the grouper. As I dug in on the research, the depths of the history kept growing and growing. Lots of people didn't know much and some people knew just enough to direct me to the exact right experts on the topic. And those experts were full of the firsthand experience of conducting the original river studies to understand why groovers were needed, experience with the various pre-groover options, and also the experience of creating the groover system. I still remember the first time I used a groover. I was 15 years old and my dad and I were traveling for a few weeks under that perfect blue sky of Idaho and Montana and we were on some perfect river with Roe, the commercial outfitter. I don't know if it was morning or evening, but I had to groove, and I didn't know what that meant yet. The guides had done that thing where they give the customers the how to use it tour of the groover. This first groover experience for me was located at the downstream end of a river island. The perch was about 20 feet above the confluence of the channels around this island, was situated in the trees, had a great view of the river, and was perfectly private. There were even comic books to read. Little did I know that day, that on this day, I would host an episode about the history of that contraption. This tour of the Groover's history begins in the Grand Canyon. A man named Jeff Ingram was there at the beginning. He wrote a book called Hijacking a River that covers many modern historical topics about the Grand to include the evolution of the waste carryout system. We start with Jeff Ingram telling us about his book.
2: It's called Hijacking a River, a political history of the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon. And the centerpiece of it is a detailed history of the uh, debates and political struggles uh, and activities to do with creating a river management plan in the late 1960s and 1970s, the plan which has been maintained although there was a big revision 20 years ago to govern river traffic but is really just in grand canyon national park
0: when i first got in touch with you i told you that i was working on a history of the groover episode for this podcast i'll be honest you you weren't the person i thought i'd meet i didn't i didn't really recognize that there was such a deep history of meetings, of civic action, of, of government groups. So I've been very surprised, and I guess maybe not surprised after I dig into it, but initially very surprised at, at the layers that were involved. When we first talked, you told me that you had an experience at the age of 29 when, in 1966 uh, on a river trip that really kind of drove you towards taking action around, we'll say, the lack of a Groover system. Can you tell me about that river, what river that was, and what was that experience?
2: That was my first trip through the Grand Canyon from Leeds Ferry down to Grand Wash Cliffs. Um, We were fortunate in that the trip was run by somebody who had the wooden dories, if you're familiar with those. We spent 19 days on the river. In 1966, a total of 1,100 people went through the river. To give you a sense of comparison, in 1972, that is six years later, 16,000 went down the river. So I was introduced to the Grand Canyon through the river on what should have been a pretty uncrowded, pristine experience. And... What we found as we went down the river, of course, we were camping on the beaches, naturally, all that, uh, stopping for lunches, going hiking and looking at the interesting views and so on, as well as enjoying running the rapids and all the other parts of of that. And at that time, when uh, it was necessary, you would go off and find a place in the sand or maybe a little bit up the bank and dig a little hole and relieve yourself, and then you'd cover it over, and quite possibly, you'd put your toilet paper in that little hole and cover it up, one hopes, and rejoin your group. As we went down the river, it was very clear that on beach after beach, you would find so many evidences, because you know the wind blows. The rainfall. And there's not a lot of room on those beaches when you come to think about it. Uh, There's even less today just because of the action of the silt not being replaced.
0: Each person you hear on the show today and a few others I talked with about the pre-Groover method of pooping in the river canyons expressed a similar story of using shovels to dig cat holes for getting rid of poop and toilet paper. Sometimes, each person would just have their own small trowel, and some trips would put a couple of large shovels in camp with toilet paper and matches, and the women would walk upstream, and the men would walk downstream, and respectively dig their holes, and sometimes burn the paper at the hole. While the idea of digging your own hole to bury poop can be effective, This has to be contrasted against the number of people that were going down rivers, a number that was growing each year significantly, and then contrasted again by how few river camps there are in steep river canyons and how this concentrates all of the boating trips to the same places. And each person walking off for their private poop session is going inevitably to the same places other people have gone for their private poop sessions. And that leads to the massive buildup of poopy cat holes all around and in each river camp.
2: By the end of the trip, it was just clear that, I don't want to say the experience was degraded. You can't, you know, if you're going down through the Grand Canyon, you are in possession of a magnificent experience. And to say that, therefore, you're it would be spoiled because of the way people disposed of their excrement would, would not be true, but it was something that was carried with us. I should say that that is just, that's an indicator because people would also burn garbage and leave it. They would have fires with charcoal and, um are leaving charcoal and the ashes and just leave them. They would take wood off the, beaches and use them for those fires. So there was all kinds of activities that were going on, and it's that degradation of that river shore environment that struck me uh, so fiercely uh, in that trip.
0: The mess of cat holes in the Grand Canyon started to gain the attention of federal land management officials who might have an impact on the poop scene. Stuart Udall had served as a federal House of Representatives member for the state of Arizona and then as Secretary of the Interior for eight years under Presidents Kennedy and Johnson. Stuart Udall was involved in many successful federal efforts to protect water and land. This included and is not limited to helping to develop the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act, the Wilderness Act, laws supporting clean air and water, and setting aside land for parks and refuges and advocating for solar energy. In 1967, while Udall was Secretary of the Interior, he went down the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon. In
2: 1967, a year later, the Secretary of the Interior, Stuart Lute Udall, took a trip with his family. He wrote an article about it, and he said it was a wonderful trip and all of that, just what you expect. But we found out, in by when I was doing my research in the Park Service records, we found out that he issued a informal order to clean up this, quote, unquote, foul canyon. And it was exactly this kind of thing, and it's what precipitated the Park Service taking the actions that it did. He got back and he said to his assistant, you know, I had a great trip, but that is that canyon is one foul place. I want it cleaned up. And once a secretary of the interior says that, then it twitches on down the line and you don't have to write things down. Obviously somebody did because I got to read this later on. But it's, it's nice to know that my impressions were verified a year later by a person with power and he acted on it.
0: Today's sponsor is, in my opinion, the manufacturer of the best groover you can acquire. Selway Fabrication is home of the Riverbank Groover, The Riverbank Groover is the Groover I carry on my boat and the Groover I make deposits into. For many years, my best boating friend always carried the Riverbank Groover on our trips, and it is simply the nicest Groover. And nice and comfortable really matter when you are carrying around a box of poop. It has plenty of room for a comfortable sit-down session and a big tank for the deposits, the tank is protected by an outer container, and the seat is built right into that outer container, which just simplifies so many things. And this Groover is 100% made in Boise, Idaho. For the next 30 days, Selway Fabrication is offering a 10% discount on their Groovers. Use the promo code RIVERRADIUS, that is one word, RIVERRADIUS, for 10% off on their products. This is good until August 18 of 2023, that is this summer, that's right, this is a re-upped promo code from Selway Fabrication for this reissue of the History of the Groover. Go to www.selwayfab.com, use the promo code RIVERRADIUS for 10% off the best groover you can sit on. Today's episode is sponsored by a new sponsor with the River Radius and a newer company in the river world, Wholesome. Wholesome helps you pack food for your river trips. You start by framing your trip with the number of people, the dates of the trip, and the dietary needs. You can bring your own recipes or you can use one of the 1,000 plus river recipes from the best river outfitters. Wholesome instantaneously creates menus, shopping lists, and cooking instructions for you. This is done using their website and a phone app that makes shopping fast and organized. You can use a monthly or an annual subscription to serve one trip or several trips. This is an excellent tool for river outfitters and can be tailored for the individual. Wholesome provides videos guiding you through the process of how to use their platform. River Radius listeners can join at 20% off. Use the promo code River Radius, all one word, that is River Radius. And use the web link in our show notes to get right to Wholesome. So 1966, you take your trip. And you're telling me also that you found in your research that in 1967, the Secretary of Interior, there's this informal order, this this conversation happening within the Interior Department around the foul nature of the canyon based on his own personal experience down there. Then in 1968, you also told me that you attended a meeting that you believe set the agenda for the movement away from leaving poop in the river corridors. Where did this meeting happen? Who was there? Why was it happening? And then the more the greater details of what was discussed and what was the outcome.
2: You don't sends the word down the line, clean it up. So over the winter of 66 and 67, Park Service starts to think about how to do this, and they decide to install pit toilets. And basically what we're talking about is you dig a big hole and you put a privy, uh, a seat over it, and you figure out some kind of enclosure, wooden enclosure or what. And that was going to be the Park Service's solution. That was what they were working on in 1967 and uh, planning to install it when we found out about it. Now, when I say we, at that time, I was working as the Southwest representative for the Sierra Club and working on what the Park Service called their master plan for managing the Grand Canyon National Park. That master plan would include Provision for how to take care of of things in the river. And I raised some questions, and as we were tended to do in the Sierra Club, made a little bit of fuss about this because our principle was that if it was wilderness, you didn't build things in it. Since the river corridor is clearly a wilderness place to us, then you don't put pit toilets down there because if you put pit toilets, maybe you're going to do. Go and put in picnic benches and maybe you're going to build fire pits. And after a while, you've got more and more stuff in there. And that's the kind of thing, if you're sensitive to wilderness values, you don't want a managing agency to do. So we were stirring things up. And what happened as a result of that is there was an organization recently founded then called the Western River Guides Association, the WRGA. And the head of that at the time was a man named Ken Slight, who was a a river runner, that is for for profit. He would take people down uh, through the canyon and other rivers, and they would pay him for the privilege. So what Ken did was to contact the superintendent of Grand Canyon, whose name was Strickland, and say, Howard, I would think we should get together and talk about this. So in June of 1968, uh, Strickland had Ken and me to his office in the park, and we discussed this issue along with other things that had to do with the management. And it was very clear at that point that there were three separate points of view. The first one, as I've said, the Park Service was saying, hey, we're going to put in pit toilets. In other words, we're going to construct our way to a solution. The position of Ken and I guess the WRGA was he didn't think the pit toilets were a good idea. We know how to run the river and we can take care of it. So let us deal with this. We'll do things, and we'll behave well, and we'll take care of it, and it won't get so bad. Our members will talk it over. And then there was us. My contribution was, if you go into a wilderness, you carry out what you carry in. So as far as human ex is concerned, take it out. Don't leave it behind. Laughter. That's their only possible response was that they couldn't they couldn't see it as anything other than a joke. The result of that meeting was basically the Park Service went ahead and installed its pit toilets.
0: At the top of this episode, Helen Howard spoke about the pit toilets at Nankoweep and the flies and the smells. Here she introduces herself and tells us more about her experiences with the pit toilets in the late nineteen sixties.
1: I'm Helen Howard. I own a company called Desert River Kayak, Canoe, and Float Tube, and we provide canoe and kayak rentals all along the lower Colorado River from the Hoover Dam down to the Morales Dam at the Mexican border. Well, um, I have been a private boater more than I have been a river guide. The 69 trip was also, um, I think that was the last year that the Park Service had the um pit toilets that they had dug in several very popular camping spots to try to keep the beaches clean, one of which was at Nankoweep. And I remember coming around the corner and there was this sound of all these incredible flies buzzing this area that the pit toilet was in. And you could smell that thing for a quarter of a mile away.
0: So these outhouses were... Kind of just this naturally ineffective tool, because they were more gross than the poop laying on the beaches. Oh,
1: horrible because they were open. there was there was not a seat on it. We didn't get real close to it, but it looked like it basically was a framework that was put in. I don't even remember if there was one of those white plastic toilet tops that they put in over pet toilets and on federal lands that don't have the dehydrators on them, uh, or any of the systems that that make it uh, you know take the liquid out. It was pretty nasty, you know, but it was, it was, it had plywood, framed plywood up on like three sides, uh, and maybe a little way that you went into it, the fourth side as well, so it gave you a little bit of privacy. But, you know, when you were, when you stood up, you were certainly visible from your shoulders up. It wasn't a, a formal house or anything like that. They used to have the same sort of thing at Hermit Camp, and the bathroom at Hermit Camp, and the same sort of thing at the, Uh, at the drop-off point on the South Kaibab Trail, that they've now replaced with more formalized and more effective toilets. But it was uh, was pretty nasty. We certainly didn't go anywhere near it.
0: So the pit toilet becomes the mechanism for how long then? And were they cleaned out, or were they just kind of left to themselves? The
2: almost instantaneous result was that they were so overused that people just stopped using them. They attracted all kinds of vermin, and they smelled, and they were, in fact, a total failure. And by the next year, the end of 1969, they were clear failures, and nobody knows how, they burned, Hmm. uh, which relieved the Park Service of having to take them out. They made their choice, they tried, and it flopped.
0: If you recall back to the meeting in 1968 that Jeff Ingram participated in with Ken Slight, who was a commercial river runner, and Howard Strickland, superintendent of Grand Canyon National Park, Jeff stated that there were three different approaches being considered to managing the human waste in the river corridor. One was to carry it out, which was not yet in practice. One was to let the commercial outfits manage it themselves. And the last was the national parks option to build pit toilets, or more commonly called outhouses. As we just heard the outhouses didn't work. And now it was clear that going back to simply letting every person poop anywhere at will was also not the option. So the next method came from the commercial outfitters and was some sort of hybrid of cat holes and pit toilets. Jeff Ingram tells us more details.
2: They were called porta potties. That became the trendy thing to do. This is what the concessioners- Came up with as their concessionaires. By that, I mean the people who were running the river for profit. And a porta potty is basically a plastic box with a seat on top, and you put chemical uh, in the bottom. It's a blue chemical. What you do is you land with your boat, you go and find a, a nice place to put the porta potty, so it's sort of out of view, and then people go up and use it over the night that you're... Or two nights, maybe, whatever, that you're using it. And then at the end, the people who are running the trip come and take the porta potty They dig a hole, a bigger hole, on the beach, and they dump the liquid and the excrement into the hole and cover it up. Eventually, you were being left with blue blotches. And when the wind blew and the rain fell uh worse but that was um that was the solution that almost i believe all the concessionaires used that was their way of avoiding regulation
0: it seems like that porta potty system is kind of this this odd hybrid of dig the cat hole of the outhouse kind of pit toilet model and even a little bit of the beginnings of the idea of the carry-out system because you are containing it, but you're not really carrying it out. You're just kind of containing it above ground for a few hours and then burying it. That all doesn't work. That's what I'm hearing you say, that it it, it kind of works, but in the big picture, it's not working. It's not solving the big problem of poop everywhere, of grossness, of unhealthy situations. And then of also what I'm hearing you say is also that the biggest thing is the damaging of this wilderness area, and and not necessarily a a federally proclaimed wilderness, but a wild area, that that wild river corridor is being damaged. And the solutions aren't, they're not yet meeting the end of truly protecting that corridor. So what comes next in the chronology of of this movement away from leaving your poop and the movement towards carrying your poop out?
2: I mentioned the numbers of people. A 1,000 to 16,000 in five or six years. And that was the trigger for a shift in the government's attention. This interested a person who who ran trips on his own and who had run a trip with Barry Goldwater, who was then the senator from Arizona, a power in the Republican Party. The Republicans were, you know, this is the Nixon administration, He began talking to his friend Barry, as he said, got him excited. And in a couple of meetings and whatever else he had to do to get noticed, Goldwater essentially said point blank to the faces of the Park Service officials, these increases, you can't keep this up. This is going to ruin the river. You've got to figure out some way to control the numbers. And besides that, And then he just mentioned the whole business about the environment of the river being degraded. So he said, figure out how to manage this river better. Well, if you are a bureaucrat and you're at a meeting, this meeting actually took place. This one I'm talking about in 1972 in Goldwater's home. And there was the regional director for the Park Service as well as the superintendent and uh, some others. They were face-to-face with a senator who could cause them a lot of trouble if they didn't hop to it. And they did. The result was that a stop, a hold, was put on the increase in the numbers. They didn't increase throughout the 1970s. And because of some other goings-on that were, when the politics got a little more mixed up, the Park Service was ordered and was given the money to do a thoroughgoing research program on the River Corridor to find out what it was like, what was happening, the goods and the bads, and to make recommendations for that matter. And that research program, I, I think it was a, must have been a model of its kind. Um, it was so thorough, and they had such good people doing it. And by that, I mean competent respected people in their professions, and it covered so many areas of, of the river shore. It just was a tremendous body of knowledge. When they do the research, they have their own boats. So they launch the boats, they go down, they stop, they do things down the river. So they're actually on the river. They're experiencing what it's like and how to handle it. And of course, in this, they were asking questions like, what are the conditions of the beaches? And since the the research uh, took place over three seasons, they were gathering research uh, in real time and about how things were changing, how people were using the river, how people were behaving when they were down in the river. Uh, And this was all more or less unknown, so it was real important information. And somewhere, somehow, they came up with the solution. And I give full credit to the field chief of this research project, a biologist named Steve Carruthers. I believe it was his idea in my book when I write about it, I say he and his team had worked out a simple solution
0: Jeff Ingram just introduced Steve Carruthers as the person leading the Grand Canyon research and as the person that he gives full credit to for developing the first groover system that is at a basic level still in use today. My name is Stephen Carruthers. I'm a,
3: a senior scientist with the SWCA Environmental Consultants.
0: A handful of river history experts recommended that I contact Steve Carruthers. They said this was the guy who developed the modern groover. Even as I write this and say this, I chuckle that there is a person known for being the inventor of the Groover, and also that I want to know more about this.
3: Poop is one of the things we don't generally talk about, and I'm, I'm impressed that you're interested. And
0: uh,
3: <laughs> I don't know what your background is Sam, but I, I think that I appreciate you taking into this. So,
0: Yeah, seriously good comment. Steve Carruthers was a young biologist working in Flagstaff at the Museum of Northern Arizona in the mid-1970s when he was able to lead some research in the Grand Canyon about the wildlife in the canyon, and this led to surveys about the human impacts that were increasing from the growing interest in participation in private and commercial river trips through the Grand Canyon on the Colorado River.
3: The first contract we had from the Park Service, it was in 1972, and it was to do a complete literature survey of what was known about the wildlife in the Grand Canyon. But in the process of just looking at the at the e- ecological system, it became very obvious that the human impacts on campable beaches were were beginning to accumulate in a very bad way. And these beaches were filling cat box style with charcoal, debris left from garbage and feces and urine. And I think the cat box analogy is really close. They they were becoming cat boxes that dearly needed to be dumped. And there was no place to dump them. And there was no more flood that would clean those beaches. So what are we going to do now? And that led to a lot of investigation into just what kind of contamination were we talking about? I remember taking folks from the health department down on the river to sample what kind of fecal coliform concentrations there were on several beaches and it was off the charts that led us to start pondering what could we do to get that feces out of there so we started experimenting with how how could we do this and I how can we get it out and and uh, the downriver magazine article that I published in 1977 pretty much laid out the results of a of about a year and a half of study that we had on trying to figure out what's the best way to carry it out.
0: Not only was Steve and his team experimenting with different methods to carry out the human waste, commercial river companies were also experimenting with different methods before the final Groover model was developed. I think it is important to remind us all that these were simply camping trips on the river. People were trying to get away from the urban life to enjoy the massive wild beauty of the rivers, and now they had to deal with their waste in a new way, and it was hard to find the best, safest method. These were expert river runners, but not experts in human sanitation disposal.
3: The river company Canyoneers, started by Gaylord Stabley, run today by Cam Stabley, his son, had a, I won't call it a rudimentary system, but they had big tanks on the back of their boats that they would dump their porta potty into. If you can imagine the porta potties in those days were like just small containerized toilet seats with a big container below them, and there would be a drain on the back of it that you could drain into the tanks. So the boatmen, the same guys that are cooking your food every day, would be just before you'd get on the boats, so there'd be last call porta potty and the boatmen would go out there and, and they would deal with the feces, and then they would bring it back to the boats. Uh, everybody's on the boat, ready to, ready to head downriver, and there's this big show of dumping that night's feces into the tanks on the back of the boat. I didn't like that system. I didn't like the idea that the same guys that are cooking your food are gonna be having to deal with the porta a potty contents a couple of times a day.
0: Wholesome is today's sponsor, and Wholesome helps you pack food for your river trips. I really enjoy having rad meals down by the river while traveling through river canyons, but I do not enjoy figuring out the meals before the trip. I get overwhelmed pretty quick with the recipes, the ingredients, the shopping, the not over-shopping. Using Wholesome, you set the number of people, the dates of your trip, and the dietary needs, you can bring your own recipes, or you use one of the 1,000-plus River recipes from the best outfitters. Wholesome instantaneously creates menus, shopping lists, and cooking instructions for you. This is done using their website and a phone app that makes shopping fast and organized. River Radius listeners can join at 20% off. Use the promo code river Radius, all one word, that is RIVERRADIUS, and use the web link on our show notes to get right to Wholesome. I am pretty sure I have used every groover model available and some homemade groovers. Selway Fabrications Riverbank Groover stands out as the best for a few reasons. One, it has plenty of room when you sit on it. Two, it is very easy to carry and secure to your boat. And third, and possibly the most important, it has design elements that minimize the sharp internal corners. And why do less corners matter? Corners can collect sticky poop and make it hard to clean. Selway Fabrication Groovers are made from low linear link polyethylene. They use a plastic molding manufacturing process and are specifically engineered to have no sharp corners on the outside of the box nor any tight corners on the inside of the tank, meaning cleanup is that much easier. For the next 30 days, Selway Fabrication is offering a 10% discount on their groovers. Use the promo code RIVERRADIUS. That is one word, RIVERRADIUS, for 10% off their products. This is good until August 18 of 2023. That's right. This is a re-upped promo code from Selway Fabrication for this reissue of the history of the Groover. Go to www.selwayfab.com. Use the promo code River Radius for ten percent off the best Groover you can sit on. That research you're conducting, and I'm referring to the research back off the river over a year and a half. Am I right that you you just set up a Groover system at your office, and your you and your colleagues then? used that to provide fresh specimen? Is that right to say it that way?
3: Let me say it a little bit more crudely. We put out a memo to the staff at the museum that we called Shit for Science, in which we we offered a can of Coke or a candy bar for anybody that would come into the office and poop into our cans and allow us to experiment with their feces.
0: Did you Did you get a lot of takers?
3: I think I ended up probably buying a couple of cases of coke. What really confounded us at the beginning of the project was, uh, even though we were scientists, uh, uh, maybe relatively immature scientists, we knew that the feces uh, was producing, as it was broken down by bacteria, producing methane gas that didn't really register with us that much until we had one of our rocket boxes blow up in 110 or 115 degree heat. So we had to start looking for a reagent that would, that would uh, kill that methane gas. And you might ask how we did that. Well, we put, we put each, of the, each of the deposits we had into a one-gallon jar, and we attached a balloon to a pipette that was sticking through an airtight sleeve through the top of the can. And we were able to measure the production of gas uh, by how big the balloon got over a period of time under different temperatures. And so it was very quickly obvious: the balloon with the formaldehyde it stayed limp through the whole time. So it it was it was the first choice. But it wasn't very long before we were able to determine that that formaldehyde is. A very nasty substance to be dealing with. And it's actually a carcinogen. And so then we went to a lot of different techniques to try to find something that would kill the bacteria, keep our rocket boxes from blowing up. We settled today on baking soda that just kills the production of methane instantly. It took us some time to get to that, but we got there and it's a system that is in use 45 years later on most of the Streams and rivers where river recreationists gather and enjoy themselves.
0: So let's talk about that article in Downriver Magazine. In there, you you provide this full description. I mean, you you give the the, kind of the rundown, the backstory, the the middle story, and then the outcome is, hey folks, here is what we recommend. We recommend these rocket boxes that you use plastic bags. Can you just tell us more about like that? What you did finally recommend? and then how it is so similar to what we're using today.
3: I don't know if your listeners can visualize, those that are not familiar with river running, visualize a rocket box. These are Army surplus ammunition boxes that measure maybe 2 feet by 10 inches by 2 feet. They're a slim box that we basically, in the early days, in the, in the article I described, we would put a double big green plastic garbage bags in the bottom of that in the bottom of the rocket box and then we would attach smaller let's say uh, kitchen uh, the, the white kitchen garbage bags to a ringed toilet seat if, if you can imagine a toilet seat that has a, a ring on it that will hold a plastic bag below it and we would have folks poop right into that plastic bag we were careful to keep our rocket boxes protected by those double garbage bags in case there was any spillage and then each day, we would have a clean set of garbage bags in in there that you would poop into. At the uh, last call porta potty, boatmen would go out. They would, without having to ever touch any of the feces, they would basically wrap up the day's deposit into double wrapped or triple backed garbage bags, and then that would be tied off and put into a separate container that we accumulated of deposits and it did not contaminate the rocket box at all when we'd come home from the river trip we'd take our full rocket boxes of feces and made a deal with whatever landfill we were dealing with at the time they would dig a trench we originally were dumping our feces into what they called the dead dog hole and this is uh, in every community back in those days you'd take your dead critters to a landfill and they would have a special spot where they dug a hole and you'd throw the, the little corpses into a pit where they would disintegrate through time. And that's where we would dump our garbage bags and just dump them out of the rocket box. And the rocket box now is still clean, right? Because it was protected from the original garbage bags that we layered that with. Later on, the Park Service was somewhat offended by that, and I think justifiably so, in that what on earth is going on in those bags in the landfill? you know, is it's really not getting a chance to decompose. Not only did we kill the methane gas with our with our reagent, but then we wrap it up in plastic and then until that plastic is is uh, broken down by the sun or whatever that stuff, the feces is not really going to get a chance to to decompose correctly. So we, we then went to uh, basically just pooping straight into the metal rocket box. There's not any plastic involved. We poop into the rocket box. We put the toilet paper directly in there with the feces, We try to encourage people not to pee in the the box when they're pooping, which is a challenge to a lot of people. People never think about trying to do one at a time when they plop their asses down on that seat. But we get people trained. and, And the reason we don't want urine in there is it just fills up too quickly and becomes much, much heavier than if you just go ahead and pee out there on the, either in the wet sand or in the river directly to keep it away from the bushes and the campsites in the, in the back. You've got to understand now we've got 21, 22,000 people a year in grand Canyon. That's an awful lot of urine that would be, uh, building up and smelling the, the campsites up. If you didn't pee directly in the river or on the wet sand in the tidal zone, that's, that's kind of where we are today.
0: And so that study then is also the the impetus for peeing in the river the you know the idea of not peeing on land peeing in the river and then also the fire pan kind of reduced the the impact of the fire rings and the charcoal and the and even the burning of trash in the fire pits am I right to assume all that kind of came at the same time out of the same study?
3: Uh, it basically did uh, that and other campsite practices. I mean. Where do you dump your wash buckets? When we started this study, it made logical sense to just dump the remains of your greasy dishwater on the beach. Well, I had a, I had a group of students down there, and I had them studying ants and what the ants are eating. And we just kept seeing this chain of ants carrying these balls of dirt back and forth to their nests and going. what What in the hell is this about? Until I realized those balls of dirt, the ants were simply excavating the grease off the top of the sand and carrying that back into their nests. So that led to, you know, I, I hate the saying, dilution is the solution to pollution. I, I hate that phrase. However, as far as what are we gonna do to keep those Grand Canyon beaches clean we now dump our chicky pails directly into the river rather than on the beach where it continues to contaminate the beach with grease and soap and whatnot. And and the dilution factor, you know, when we're running 14,000, 15,000 cubic feet per second in Grand Canyon, a couple of hundred chicky pails are not going to be causing any perceptible change in the water quality We had to keep it off of the beaches. As far as the fires go, I had other students doing studies on the contamination of the beaches with charcoal, and we had a little instrument that could record color changes. In, in, In other words, we would take sand and shake it through a filter paper and then push that filter paper into a recording device that would tell us how much color there was in it, and it, it's more complicated than that, but but we were we had some beaches that popular beaches that were camped in every single night during the river season. Once you shake clean sand against the filter paper, there should be no color picked up by the filter paper. well, some of these they came out dark gray, and it was simply because every part of that beach was stained by charcoal. Uh, ash uh, just the color was accumulating and again cat box style right you build a fire on a beach that doesn't get washed by the river anymore and pretty soon it's pretty damn dirty and uh, we then looked at revising all kinds of campsite procedures from you're going to build a fire you're going to have a fire pan you're going to have an asbestos blanket under the fire plan, and you're going to not only containerize your fire But in the morning when you dump your fire pen, you're going to dump it into a rocket box and carry it out. You're going to take that ash out. The beaches that were filthy dirty back in the olden days are now cleansed, and that's because uh, we'll have periodic releases of 40, 45,000 cubic feet per second. To, to try to bring sand up off the bottom of the river and get it distributed up on the beaches. And, the, and it has brought clean sand. And even back in those days, the guide community, they, they were maniacal about picking up pop tops and not not letting cigarette butts or any kind of scrap of paper, any kind of scrap of refuse was, was automatically picked up. The, the boating community was very sensitive to keeping that place clean. When we got involved, we we took that all the way to the feces and the urine and the charcoal. And uh, the system that we have today keeps those beaches clean.
0: So what I'm gathering from all of these conversations that I'm having is that the Groover is born from the Grand Canyon. It then moves around the west. It's a ubiquitous tool around the west on the rivers for overnight trips. Do you know anything about how it went from the Grand to the next place and the next place and the next place?
3: Well, I do, and that is that most of our guide community guide on other rivers, the green, the, the upper Colorado, the west water. It made boatmen's lives much, much more simple and pleasant to put the poop in a can and not have to lay down your head at night on a sandy beach and smell urine all night. It, it made everybody's lives so much better. So it was this very, very simple solution that needed to be carried to other other places. It just makes things more pleasant for everybody.
0: The Groover is born in the Grand Canyon, a place that is still massively popular with both commercial and private boaters. In the 1970s and 80s, river boating was and had been growing in popularity and accessibility in other river corridors of the western United States, and so it made sense that the Groover would travel to the other rivers and become a valuable tool for keeping those rivers free of human waste. As I continued looking for the conduits of the Groover history, I was directed towards Laverne Grusing, a longtime Salmon River Ranger in Idaho and another significant supporter of the spread of the Groover.
4: My name is Laverne Grusing. I live on the Clearwater River in Idaho. I am currently happily retired. I spent my entire career, actually, working on the lower 112 miles of the Salmon River here in Idaho. I worked as an outdoor recreation planner for the Bureau of Land Management out of Cottonwood, and I spent a very happy 30 years spending most of my time on the Salmon River.
0: So the the Groover's developed in the Grand. What do you understand about how that system of the, the carryout system was then disseminated around the rest of the West as a tool to protect river corridors?
4: When I started with the BLM on the Salmon River,
0: we would do river
4: patrols on a fairly regular basis. The three things that we had to do while floating on the Salmon River in those days was pick up tires, pick up human waste that we found, uh, which it was not terribly extensive, but every beach that was used had human waste problems and then cleaning up fire range, which is ubiquitous and, and still still is to a certain extent. Uh, we had several outfitters that ran the, the Grand Canyon, specifically Grand Canyon Dories, as it was called at the time, and Holiday River Expedition. And a guy named Frog Stewart started up a holiday branch on the Salmon River in Idaho. And talking with those guys, is when we realized that there were better ways of dealing with human waste than we were doing. When we came to the idea of of trying to get people to carry out after talking with the Grand Canyon outfitters and and doing some research, there, there was no way we could put in pit toilets even if we wanted to. It's too isolated. There's not enough space in the steep canyons. We came up with the idea that we wanted to start a carry-out program here, and we got our ideas from those Grand Canyon outfitters as to how to proceed as far as equipment went, but not much else. We also had their support, which was very helpful. We started to carry out programs in 1982, I think, is when we really started getting going on that, on the human waste thing. And we tried to do it on a voluntary basis because we, the BLM at the time really had, no law enforcement capabilities whatsoever and essentially were anti-regulation of any kind anyway everything that we did down there we had to do through basically education and public relations we purchased a, a huge number of plastic buckets from a local mcdonald's with lids and we converted those into carryout toilets and we would put together a, a bucket with a lid We made a whole bunch of toilet seats and we included that along with plastic bags and some odor reducer in each toilet that we would then give out to people at launch sites or as we encountered them on the river. The reaction at first was pretty negative amongst the non commercial users. It was not negative so much as disbelief. We got the message more than once that, yeah, when you guys start putting diapers on the cows that graze along the river in the wintertime, then we'll start carrying out our waste. And so we had to get into a little bit into the science of things and and about the difference between animal shit and human shit, you know, so we had to educate ourselves first before we could educate others. And it was kind of a, a, a good process actually, because we learned a lot and I think we were able to convey a lot of that to, to the users. And eventually, we got to the point where compliance with people on the river with our recommended carryout was in the neighborhood of eighty percent, which is um, we thought was quite remarkable. So that's kind of how we got it started here. And through the River Management Society, I kind of spread that that message on how we had done it, and. and as, as a possible solution, then it started spreading. I think to more places throughout the Northwest and uh, Utah and Montana as well. So that's that's kind of the background that I have.
0: So you talked about the conversation with the boaters that some of the pushback was make the cows wear diapers. They don't poop here. We won't poop here. But until that time, we're pooping here. And you had to do work to kind of soften that, soften that resistance and help people understand the difference between the, the types of, of poop that a human and an animal creates, etc. I'm always curious about problem solving when it comes to public lands and public perceptions. From my experience as, as working as a BLM ranger for a year, it's always a real challenge to get a message across. So I'm curious what else you might have done, what else you were doing to help to help spread the message that the Groover was a good idea, even if it was super annoying to carry a box of poop.
4: Yeah, I think I'll go back briefly to the idea of tires. When we would pull into a beach where people were camped and talk to the people about what was going on on the river, having a, a raft loaded with 20 tires was guaranteed to provide an opening for conversation. We use that to our advantage by, uh, you know, talking to them about we're just cleaning up the river and, and picking up the tires and everybody appreciated that. And then we get into the other issues that we were trying to address when we were floating on the river, which included picking up toilet paper and human waste and carrying it out just so that the beaches would be pristine. And we would then talk about how human waste pathogens can last in the soils for years and years and years. And if you let people know that, that it's more than just a one-time issue, that it's a long-lasting problem, that seemed to help a lot too. And then the other thing is, is that it's easy to point out that when you're on the river, that there's simply no place at many of the camps, if not most, there's not any place to put a pit toilet, there's simply not the physical space to do so. That made our job a little bit easier as well. And then I think the final piece of that was was really we were able to, with with all of those pickle pails and you know we were able to give people toilets at no cost and show them how to use it and and just ask them to try it and see, you know how how. Comfortable it could be, and how positive it could be, rather than as the negative. And so that was that was one of the uh, that was one of the ways that we got a lot of buy-in to this uh, to the whole program. And then the final thing was what to do with it at the end of the trip, and that became a pretty large issue because as people became comfortable carrying out what to do with it at the end of the trip, became more and more important because. A lot of the takeouts don't even have facilities. A lot of people in municipal landfills were saying no, we can't handle dumpsters full of human waste and put them in the landfill. It became quite an issue and so that's when we started working on something that we could do for the at the takeout or somewhere close to the takeout that would be a, an environmentally sound and socially sound method of disposing of that human waste that you were carrying out and that's when we started work on the SCAT machine and started bouncing around ideas on how to how to do that.
0: Well let's start off with SCAT machine can you tell me what SCAT I think it's an acronym is it an acronym?
4: Yeah of course there's got to be an acronym if it's a government thing so it stands for sanitizing containers with alternative technology.
0: Can you tell us about your role In developing those and and how you as a group of people came up with the kind of the final product and how they work, you know, what's also happening? Because that's a lot of poop and pee and toilet paper to drop into a system. Where is it also going? So, yeah, if you can give us a big picture there, please.
4: Yeah, that was a pretty long process to get to the point where we actually developed the machine. But in 1990 and 91, I had River Rangers working for me, John and Cindy Witzel. One of the things that we discussed frequently while on the river patrols, trying to figure out what we could do with this this whole human waste disposal issue, and and John is quite the fabricator, and, and Cindy was had some very good ideas, and so we discussed developing a system where we could wash and clean the containers of human waste as they came out off the river, and get the waste deposited into. Um, a sewage system, and so it it took a lot of talk and a lot of discussion and what we needed, and they built a prototype uh, that we first started using in nineteen ninety two for boaters coming off the lower salmon. and we were able to sign an agreement with a small town of about thousand people in Washington. They had a trailer dump station along the river. And it's the only access up into Hell's Canyon and to the lower salmon. So as people were taking out from those two rivers, they had to drive right past where the scat machine was located and it just fed it directly into the the municipal sewage system. And we charged a fee for that. And we gave all of the money that we collected from the fees to the city to cover their costs, which was electricity and of course the, the sewer costs. That worked out pretty well. Everybody was was pretty happy with it, and, and that's how the, the scat machine got started.
0: And from there, the Groover has become a normal tool on many overnight trips in the West. There are companies like Selway Fabrication building and selling Groovers. There are places to clean them out, like scat machines and RV dump sites. There are books written about the scary, gross encounters of the Groover. There are amazing places to set up Groovers along so many rivers. There are people who own Groovers, and people who won't. The stories of dumping the plastic bags from the Groover into the alleyway dumpsters behind restaurants. Stories of using ladles to dump Groovers into desert outhouses to empty the Groover out before the next remote commercial trip. The confusing of the rocket boxes. Yes, those are all real stories. Over the years, and in this set of interviews, I have heard various versions of how the Groover got its name of The Groover, with several minor variations. And originally, before it was given the common name we have today, it had a couple of different names. We will start this quick rundown of the Groover naming story with Helen Howard, followed by Laverne Grusing, and finally, Steve Carruthers. The rocket boxes that you sat on and then you had two grooves down your butt
1: cheeks when you got up. But The first time I used a Groover, it it was maybe my fourth trip in the Grand Canyon before anybody brought a toilet seat
4: to put on it. So if you used the Groover, you were going to get grooves. The one complaint that the Grand Canyon guys had was that the Groover, as it was called, was called that for a reason because of the grooves left behind after you used it. And we wanted to make it a little more comfortable, so we, we made a bunch of cheap toilet seats uh, in our shop.
0: So in the uh, in the 1977 article in Downriver Magazine that you wrote, I see that the the toilet, the carryout system, it was given the name... The Carruthers crapper that hasn't stuck. Obviously, we have the name the Groover. I'm curious. Uh, would you consider yourself? <laughs> would you consider yourself the father of the Groover?
3: You know what? I'm. I'm I, I would. I, I wouldn't call it father of the Groover. The Groover is a is a name that that port-a-potty got because some careless boatman lost the toilet seat. Right, and and the Groover comes from you have to sit directly on the rocket box, which is uh, not razor sharp, but uh, the edges of that can leave two grooves along the side of your ass if you don't have a toilet seat on it. I, I've never really liked the term, the gruber. We've never lost our toilet seat. Nobody, Nobody on our river trips has ever come out of there branded with two welts on either side of their butt. And uh, uh, we call it the porta potty. And, and I'm proud to be the father of the porta potty.
0: A clean, river size thank you goes out to all of our guests today and to the people who share their Groover knowledge with me. There is a lot of information in the show notes today links to Jeff Ingram's book, another book of scary Groover stories, a link to Steve Carruthers' Downriver Magazine article, and to other great articles about this history. You can find The River Radius on Instagram and Facebook where additional river content is published weekly. You can also find more information on our website. Those links are also in the show notes. You can contact us anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com. Send us a message about a sweet river story or your thoughts on our production or just to say hello. We appreciate it all. My name is Sam Carter. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius. They
2: recommended that the excrement be removed in plastic bags in containers. Right there is the core of the Groover idea.
1: It's relatively easy to sit on the box, you know. You take the top off, you shake it down, and and then you sit down, do your business, put your toilet paper in it, you know, and put the top back on it and seal it down for the next poor sucker to show up. And I can't tell you how many rocket boxes I
3: have in my boathouse that are Frankly, disgusting now, there's a smell to them that they'll always be porta potty rocket boxes now. Uh, you're not putting anything else in them. That's the system we use today, a rocket box that we poop directly into.